0: Welcome to Booknotes, Ohio Channel's interview show where we look at Ohio authors and books about Ohio. Columbia University grad Ann Hagedorn has worked as an educator, written for the Wall Street Journal, and has penned a wealth of narrative nonfiction, including Beyond the River, a documentation of the Underground Railroad in Ripley, Ohio, where she currently lives. And thank you, Ann Hagedorn, for joining us today. So... How do you get your ideas? There's there's so rich development. What what gets you into writing these books?
1: Well, that's uh, that's an excellent question. Now, Dan, because I'm between books, and I'm in that process again. Um, my ideas really are based on several concepts. One is I want stuff that's really fresh and original. I'm you know, passionate about narrative nonfiction writing, and so it, it, you approach it two different ways, and you can either bump into a wonderful story, a fabulous story, like I did with my first book, Wild Ride, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Great Sports Dynasty, Calumet Farms, but you know, you, you find a great story, or you're very interested and concerned about a particular issue, so you go out and do reporting and try to find a narrative that puts a human face on a literary, uh, you know, sort of flow to presenting those issues to the general reader. And so um, I want really fresh and original stuff because that inspires me.
0: That's awesome. You just you have this effervescent joy just about this act, and so many times it feels like writing is this angst-ridden process. Now, something else you talked about, the, the joy of non-narrative fiction. Yeah. And here in uh, Beyond the River, which is this book that really you get to feel the area and the space and the time that John Rankin lived in. I want you to read um, just this, uh, this paragraph right here. Okay. I'm gonna have a question about this.
1: Okay. Okay, I shall do that. Okay. Oh, okay. On the hot, humid days of an Ohio Valley summer, clouds of mist sometimes hover above the river, their thin white wisps nearly touching the water like arms reaching out from bodies adrift in the air. They haunt the hollows between bluffs and linger for hours in the hills beyond the river, smoke from some primeval time. Early in the morning on one such steamy day in the summer of 1825, low-lying mist moved along the river near Maysville, Kentucky, but the wisps were gray this time and ashes swirled around them. In Ripley, nine miles downriver, boatmen docking at dawn brought the news that a warehouse in Maysville had burned to its base. Its contents, including at least 400 copies of a book of Rankin's letters, we're completely destroyed. The cause was arson.
0: Okay. And so I am so into that. I can see that. I can feel that. I get that. I get that whole sense. And you've done exhaustive research on this. Yes. Yeah. How yeah. do you write this? I mean, you weren't there. In the 1820s, 30s, whenever this was going on, how does that, when you're sitting down to write, how does that, how do you describe that? How does that happen?
1: Well, for one thing, I did observe that, you know, uh, because that still happens. So, yeah, so that and also for authenticity. You know, I lived in Ripley while I was writing the book. I mean, that's one of the reasons I went to Ripley, so that I would know, because I thought, you know, this is an intellectual exercise telling the story of this grassroots movement known as the Underground Railroad. Uh, But I need to bring it alive. I need for people to realize that the Underground Railroad isn't just about architecture and hiding people in cellars and all the stuff that we all grew up hearing, especially all of us who grew up in Ohio, because this is, the Underground Railroad is about people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about architecture, it's about a network of people who risked their lives and their livelihoods for something they so strongly believed in, which was ending slavery. And so I thought the only way to do that was to actually experience the seasons in Ripley, the seasons on the Ohio River Uh, what was it like because there were slaves escaping across uh, that river um, in all seasons. And so what was was it like to live there? What was it like to open your door every day and look across the river and realize that you were looking at a piece of land where slavery was legal? Mm -hmm. You know, what was it really like to do that? And so that paragraph is really just from, Witnessing, you know, I always keep a notebook with me and no matter what, you know, if an idea pops up or if I see something that I think could be used as a metaphor, that kind of thing, I pop out, you know, my notebook and write it down. When it was time to write about that part in the evolution, you know, in the flow of the story, then I pulled out that description. This is an excerpt from my third book, Beyond the River, and it's the first paragraph of the preface, which is entitled A Double Life. The people who lived on Front Street were the first to notice changes on the river. They knew when calm water began to churn, lapping loudly against the shore, or when boats stalled on shallow bends as rains of warmer days turned to snow and water levels fell. And in the middle of the wintry night, when sheets of ice slid down river, they could hear the high-pitched moan that some would say was the gradual grinding of the ice as flows collided and congealed. Others would swear it was the sound of a human cry, for as everyone in the town of Ripley knew, especially those who lived closest to the water— On Front Street, things happened in the night when the river froze. Things that some townsfolk tried hard to expose and others risked their lives to conceal.
0: You love every step of the process. Yeah, I really do. A lot of the times um, you hear about the struggle of the writer, about sitting down and just being able to make the stuff flow. Do you have those struggles? Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. For me, the struggle is the solitude, is, uh, you know, the... Actually, I began my acknowledgments in my last book with the comment from John Steinbeck, who said, you know, if you can't stand the solitude, go into the theater. Don't be a writer, you know. And so... In this day and age, I mean, for me, the biggest challenge is getting into that zone and dealing with the solitude, but then it's also the shift in gears when you're done, because you get used to it. You have your routines and your rituals, and you're used to the rhythm of the writing, and then all of a sudden you, you turn it in, you work with your editor, and then all of a sudden you're sitting here.
0: What are some of your routines and, and what are some of your rituals?
1: I do have a, a ritual. There's actually a, a wonderful article in um, the New York Times. I carry it around with me when I give lectures on writing because it's, it's humorous, um, although a little scary. But it was written in the late 1970s about the rituals of writers throughout time it's quite interesting you know Balzac had 25 cups of coffee, Willa Cather read from the Bible, Aldous Huxley apparently sat in a tree for a while or something some writers write uh, in the nude and it goes into all those details and I was very pleased when I saw the paragraph in that article years ago that said and some writers have a musical theme to their pieces of uh, writing to their works and each of my books, there is one. For each of my books, there is one uh, piece of music that, and I use that as my ritual, and uh-huh. it's very Pavlovian. So it is the same piece of music, and it even says in that article, and they they listen to it thousands of times. And so each of my books, I have a certain piece of music, and that gets me into. That is my ritual. But it, but it has humor in it, because then if you hear that piece in public, in the future, you walk into a restaurant or something and hear Ravel. You know, Ravel was for my second book. Same piece of music, then you immediately kind of want to go right, you know, <laughs> so there are dangers to it. But that's huh. my um, tried and true uh, um, Ritual.
0: Just a few more questions. Mm-hmm. I'd like to find out uh, what, where your inspiration for writing came from, and then why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how uh, Ohio has influenced you
1: there are two answers to the writing question. And one is professionally, I got my start at at New York University years ago with a job. I had a job as a ghostwriter. And I loved it because I was very, very shy. And this being able to write without anybody knowing who wrote it was, was really ideal. And so that was sort of my burst into the world of writing. You know, that was the Uh, entryway, I guess. But subconsciously, it really goes back to Ohio because um, I grew up in Dayton and uh, part of Dayton, Oakwood. And there was a little library there, the Wright Public Library on Far Hills Avenue. And that's where I would go every summer for the Johnny Appleseed Reading Club and Um, all kinds of, you know, reading um, activities. And I really think it began there because I I write my, the first paragraph of all my books I write in the New York Public Library reading room. It's my ritual and tradition. And I force myself to go there. I mean, it's not hard to force myself to go there, but um, I force myself to stay until it's written. And sometimes that really is hard. And, you know, and I'll go day after day, if it's not written yet, Uh, I can disconnect with safety, you know, disconnect uh, emotionally and dive into a piece of of writing, uh, get into that zone. Um, so easily there. And I honestly think, I, I figured this out <laughs> last time I did it, that the reason is from, is because of the Wright Public Library. And because that's sort of where um, I would go as a kid to read. And also I wrote little short stories and I'd write them in the they had these little leather chairs at, at the Wright Public Library. And I think that's where the seed was planted, plus I have a family that uh, has deep historical connections to Ohio, and I grew up hearing stories constantly about Ohio history and family history, but I grew up in a storytelling family, so it seemed like the most natural thing in the world. And, you know, it was always sort of foreign to me if I was having conversations with people and they weren't kind of plucking stories out of the world and that that, that's how they would, you know, converse through storytelling. And then I found out there are people in the world who don't do it that way, but yeah. And
0: and now you live in Ripley because of the book.
1: Um, I was drawn to it. I I thought I wanted to come back to Ohio to make the reporting authentic. And then I I just—my mother lived about two and a half hours away. I sort of reconnected to her, you know, in a deeper way than I ever had when I came back to do that research. And then I started realizing all kinds of things about Ohio. And I decided that um, maybe that's where I should write my books. As long as I I could have that tether to New York, it just seemed like the smartest thing to do. And then it was just, my grandmother was right, you know, grow where you're rooted, you know, that's where my roots are.
0: That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Before you go, we do have this thing called speed round. I'm going to ask you four questions, and you answer with one or two word answers. The first question is pen or pencil? Oh, pen. Pen, and it's probably that fountain pen right there that you're holding, right? Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: Uh, What about paper or computer?
1: Uh, Computer.
0: And um, what about favorite writers right now?
1: Oh, right now. Well... In the summers, uh, or between books, I should say, I always find certain authors and I want to read all of their works. And um, at the moment, I'm reading Joyce Carol Oates.
0: Cool. Um, What would you say to your younger self? What advice Uh, would you give?
1: What would I say to my younger self? Oh, What I would say um, is—actually, this is related to something I just reread. Uh, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet because in that Rilke, you know the poet, the Austrian poet and Rilke um, wrote this letter, uh, wrote this book really to all, all of the fans or all of the poets who are always writing to him and saying, am I a poet? Am I a good writer? Can I keep doing this? Uh, Should I keep doing this? And he wrote this book, Letters to a Young Poet, which is, it's not to one poet, it's really to all of them, I think. And in it he says, Uh, I can't tell you. You have to believe in yourself. You can't be a writer unless you believe in yourself. So when I was younger, I was just waiting for everybody to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, it's okay. You have a green light. You can write. You know, you are a writer. And so what I tell students um, is that you're a writer if you're writing and if you've got that notion, and you've got that inside, you cannot ignore it, and you have to serve it. You have to pay attention to it, and you can't wait for the outer world to say uh, you're a writer, or you're a great writer, or you're going to win the Pulitzer next year. You can't wait for those things at all. You have to follow what's inside of you. You have to follow your instincts, and you have to believe in yourself. So I think that Uh, I would have said to my younger self, you know, stop worrying about it, you know, not to worry, (laughs) you know, just do it. And um, don't worry about what other people think, just do it. Eventually, you know, you'll become a writer.
0: That's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. And thank you for, for joining us here on our show. It's Anne Hagedorn. I suggest going to Amazon Finding all of her books, putting them in your checkout, and buying them all. That's all worth your time. Very, very good writer. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, thanks, Dan. It's been great.